don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. And this week we have a conversation with Heather Crystal, the author of The Crying Book. And The Crying Book is all about our tears, the, the science, the research, the feelings, you know, basically, uh, you know, our saddest and crying moments looked at from a thousand different angles. I love this book. I learned whole new things about uh, tears that I never knew before, which you will hear plenty of in the discussion. And um, Heather really comes at it from inquiry, investigation, love of poetry. She is a poet who's been published in The New Yorker, uh, The London Review of Books, Poetry, and other journals. Uh, She teaches creative writing at Emory University. And this is a really heartfelt book. Uh, some content advisory we do uh, later in the episode touch on you know some themes of suicidal ideation and um, uh, mental illness and things like that as one of the thousand ways we look at tears and crying Um, and I think we handle it very well and in an inspiring way but you should know it's there and um, I'm really proud of this discussion and I hope you enjoy it as well so here is Heather Crystal. Heather Crystal thank you so much for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. So uh, this book, The Crying Book, uh, kind of takes on crying from, it feels like a thousand different angles. Uh, Can I ask where the idea for this book came from or took shape? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It wasn't a book at first. Uh, At first, I just had this idea of what it might be like if I made a map of every place that I'd ever cried. Uh, And I turned this idea over in my mind and talked about it with friends and pretty soon realized that the map itself wouldn't reveal all that much. It would just be, you know, a map of every place that I'd ever lived. (laughs) Um, But the conversations that it made happen were really interesting to me because my friends would share their own stories of crying or ideas about crying. And so I thought I'd start writing a little bit about it. And usually I am a poet, so I thought I would probably write a poem or maybe a prose poem. Um, but then it kept going. There was more that I found I had to say. And then I thought, well, that's all right. It's an essay and that's normal. People write essays. That's okay. Um, but then I realized I had all these questions, um, that I couldn't answer easily on my own. And so I began to do research. And when I saw the richness of resources that were available, um, and all of the connections that occurred, you know, across art and history and science and sociology and psychology, I realized that this was going to have to be a book. Wow. And you start the book in a place that I really didn't expect, um, where you say, uh, after a real cry, most people are hideous, as if they've grown a bare and diseased face beneath the one you know, leaving very little room for the eyes, or they look as if they have been beaten. Um, A little later in the paragraph, you say you looked like a druggie. Um, And I I was wondering what, why that place? What, what, uh, what's behind that choice? Well, in some ways, I wanted to right away let readers know that this book was not going to be a sort of precious celebration of tears. It's very easy to imagine a book by a poet about crying that could be that. 
Um, and I didn't want people to enter the book thinking that that was what they were walking towards. Um, but also I think it's a way of being with the actual physical reality of tears, right? Not the way that we think of their symbolism or their role in culture, um, but really anchoring the book in the first place in the physical. Wow. Somehow that image of like the physical transformation that we go through and the comparison to a druggie really framed a lot of what came later in the idea of tears as like state change, kind of like a drug might make you high, that something very big is happening inside that you change how you feel when you cry. Yeah, I should add too that the the druggie thing was a um, an observation that this kid in my class, uh, I was in like fourth grade, uh, made about how I looked. So um, it did come from elsewhere. <laughs> wow. Well, um, very cool. Uh, and the book is filled with sort of facts and experiences around crying from a thousand different angles, both reflective on your own life and researched. And I wonder if you could just start us out with uh, some of the most things that surprised you in your research about crying. Yeah, um, I mean, there were so many moments. Uh, the the one that I think struck me the most and ended up uh, feeling quite important in the book uh, is that tears have different chemical compositions. There are three different kinds of tears. There's basal tears, which lubricate your eyes. Um, then there are irritant tears that you shed when you get a speck of dust in your eye or when you're chopping onions. Um, and then there are psychogenic or emotional tears. Uh, and those tears are, uh, they're thicker um, because they have a higher protein content than the non-psychogenic tears. Um, and that thickness means that they fall down your face more slowly. Uh, and some people theorize that the reason for this is that that increases the chances that they'll be seen and whatever message it is that they are meant to send will be received. Wow. So they are communication. Yeah, that's that's one of the possible ways of understanding them. Um, and you can probably tell this from the book. I try not to uh, come down too hard on any sort of one um, absolute certainty about tears. The, the thousands of different angles are put together in order to kind of show the multitude of possibilities for interpretation. Um, but I am pretty intrigued by the idea of tears as communication. And then again, that that changes their actual physicality. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it, um, you know, it changes some memories because of course I've cried because I've chopped onions and they're very watery and I've had good sobs and felt like big, thick tears, but never paused to consider that these are different. Yeah. I hadn't known that either. I think that I had a sort of, slight feeling of familiarity like oh yeah those are a little thinner they fall more swiftly um but it wasn't something i had ever brought to the front of my consciousness before and i was really really glad for it um the other one that's actually not in the book but that i love to tell people about is um you know the sensation of a lump in your throat yeah um, and that often happens when you are sort of on the verge of tears you, that's a signal that they're on their way well it turns out that the lump is not actually a lump. So when you're in emotional distress, your body works to get you as much oxygen as it can. Um, and so 
it holds the, um, the muscles of your throat open so that you can continue to breathe easily. But because crying produces these fluids and some of them drip down your nasal passages and into your throat, it means that you need to swallow. And when you try to swallow, your throat muscles resist it and try to stay open. So it creates the sensation of a lump. That is really interesting. Just the, uh, our bodies are designed to do uh, this whole crying thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I like knowing that, um, that your body's sort of working to take care of you in that moment. Um, I was talking with somebody about this and they had always felt worried that their throat was actually going to close up. And I think it's reassuring to know that that sensation is actually a sign of the opposite happening. One thing that surprised me in your book is that uh, the idea that tears are emotionally healing is actually scientifically quite controversial. Um, that, that some of the studies say the opposite, that you might feel worse after crying. Yeah, there's there's mixed studies, um, or the, there are many different results. But I'm, I'm fascinated by that, um, not exactly because I want to know with absolute certainty whether tears are good for you or not, but I'm very curious about the idea that we have that tears are good for you. Um, I feel like we end up with a sort of, um, oh, almost um, partisan approaches to crying where there are some people who are very suspicious of tears. Um, and then there are others who are absolutely on the side of tears always being a good, right? Um, and it's, I think it's just much more complicated than that. Um, but I am very interested in the idea that people have that crying will make you feel better, that if you cry, you let it out, right? Um, and so some of the studies that show, you know, the release of stress hormones um, through crying, people get very attached to and are less willing to hear some of the other studies about um, crying sometimes making people feel worse. Yeah. Um, where do you come down on that question, just personally, after doing this book and having... It, it changes. I mean, there, there are some times when I cry and I feel better, and there are some times when I cry and it feels worse. Um, I mean, I every person's relationship to crying is particular to their own experience, right? Um, my particular experience is informed by the fact that... Uh, that I struggle with issues in my mental health in various ways. And so there are times when for me, the crying is uh, deeply overwhelming and um, extremely difficult to climb my way out of. What does that feel like? And is it different from other kinds of cries, the crying that you can't get out of? Uh, yeah, I mean, I um, it feels, it can feel terrifying. It can it can feel like I am down at the bottom of a deep hole, and the more I cry, the slippier the slipperier the walls are um, that I would need to climb to get back out again. So it can be a, a state um, that one can get stuck in. Is what you're saying? Yeah, I can anyway. Um, but then there are other times when I cry from a sense of joy or gratitude or um, times when I cry because I am sad about a thing, a particular thing, and then I move into another feeling. Uh, so it, it really varies. Um, 
that's that's why there are so many different ways of looking at crying in the book. Yeah, you know, it it reminds me you have a section in the book of um, different advice to stop crying, and you examine them, like Joan Didion's advice to put your head in a paper bag. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if anyone ever feels stuck and crying and wants out, do do any of those work or or very hit and miss? Um, I think it depends on sort of uh, the the point of crying that you're at. But yeah, I mean, some of these can be really, really effective. Um, I haven't actually tried the paper bag method, um, but I have uh, I have used the sort of um, mindfulness techniques, you know, of picking a color and trying to find every instance of it in a room. Um, or another one is just drinking water it, that physically interrupts um, some of the processes that are happening um, and can be helpful if if stopping crying is the thing that you need to make happen, which sometimes it is. Yeah. You know, one thing I really like about your book is there are moments when uh, the writer the book just feels really in love with crying and moments when it feels deeply suspicious of it. And I could wonder if you could tell me a little bit about um, insincere tears. Oh, sure. Um, so those are tears that are shed uh, with a desire to get something. And they, they're strategic, um, I would say. Um, they are still real tears. Um, there's this beautiful line from the crying researcher Ed Wingerhutz where he says, all tears are real tears, though some may be insincere. Um, and I'm really drawn to that sentence, I think, because it acknowledges the body's ability to produce this physical thing that had you know have the same chemical makeup as the tears that you cry in all sincerity so you, you do have to um, generate a feeling within yourself to make the tears fall um, but it's it's fascinating to me that as humans we're able to to summon that uh, we're, we're able to summon tears forth uh, strategically on occasion yeah um, it's really interesting question of why we cry. Um, thinking about that reminded me of a very strong memory from middle school, actually, when I'd been having a really hard time, you know, making friends and uh, was sad all the time. Um, and then uh, somebody who I didn't know well in my class uh, died. Uh, and there was an assembly to talk about it and everyone around me was crying. Um, and I never would have cried for this student because I didn't know them, really. But everyone around me is crying, so I start bawling. And it felt so good to finally, like, cry and cry in public and get it all out, as they say, and have a safe place to do that. But I wasn't crying because for the same reasons the people around me were, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. The thing is, though, it's hard to say sometimes precisely why you're crying. Um there's a there's a line from a poem by my friend Zach Schomburg in the book um, where he says, the good thing about crying is you don't have to pick a subject. And I, I think that that's another part of why I'm sort of fascinated by tears is that I'm a person who works in words, right? I'm, I'm a poet and I'm a writer and I am constantly thinking about language and how to put things into words and what words can 
do with our experience. Um, and yet there are times when perhaps there is a, a blurriness between the boundaries of reasons why we might be crying. And it's possible that for other people in the room, they, they too were experiencing some other form of grief or sorrow or some other emotion that was leading them into the tears and that the public occasion, the communal, the communal occasion um, of this assembly provided a space in which the physical manifestation of those feelings could occur. Yeah, it was really special because, of course, I think a nightmare for a me at that, that time and probably a lot of kids that age having a hard time would be you know to let the other people your peers see you weak see you cry uh, and to have that turned on its head was very special yeah yeah absolutely yeah that's another you, you bring up a word that I'm sort of interested in in relation with crying which is the idea of weakness um, and this kind of comes back to that partisan approach to tears um, where there are ways of seeing tears as signs of weakness. And then people who resist that frame um, will sometimes try to say, no, tears are actually a sign of strength. And especially if you see like a man crying, people will heap praise upon them for his strength in um, being able to show his emotions. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about sort of moving beyond that frame so that, um, we don't see tears as a sign of weakness or strength or attach value to the idea of weakness or strength, um, or just see if there's broader ways that we can come to understand weakness and strength and, and crying. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, because you, you do write in the book that when I am in the fog of despair, I fear I cried too much to be a good partner or parent or person. Um, that there's this, you know, there's a shame that can be attached to crying. And um, I wonder if you can help lead us out again from attaching either shame or strength or value judgments to crying. What is the bigger way of relating to our tears? Yeah, there are ways in which I think we can look through tears to see what it is that they are calling attention towards or working um, t working to hide sometimes. So tears can be a sort of lens that we look through um, rather than sort of halting at the fact of tears themselves, um, a lens or a window, um, however you want to think about it. So it's interesting to look at what tears make happen. Um, that's a kind of another way of reframing things. Like a person is crying, therefore what is happening around them? What care um, do they request through their tears? Um, what actions do they request through their tears? Are those, is that care or are those actions brought into existence? Um, do they need to be there? So, Looking, looking through and around, I'm always obsessed with prepositions, looking through and around the tears, I think, is a good beginning. See it from many angles, which is what this book does. Yes, again, yeah. Most of this book feels very universal, that there's some really universal experience to crying, to the physiology, to, to grief and sadness and depression and all those reasons. Um, but as I mentioned before, this book looks at crying from 
um, basically, I think, feels like every angle one could think of. And in a few places, very poignantly, you bring up um, the topic of racism and uh, white lady tears. And uh, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, absolutely. Um, so this kind of gets back to the question of what do tears make happen around them? Um, and there are many instances in which a white woman will shed tears and in reaction to that, um, depending on sort of the, the circumstances, um, as Br Brittany Cooper says, the, the whole world rises in her defense. Um, so this can happen in sort of uh, casual settings. You know, there could be a meeting where um, a white woman says something racist and a person of color calls her out um, and the white woman's reaction would be um, to start crying, which causes other people in the room to tell the person of color that they need to chill out or that they're being aggressive, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but then there are also uh, even more harmful and, and violent effects that I think at this point, I'm hopeful that most people are familiar with, um, such as white women shedding tears in order to call down the violence of the state against black people in particular. Yeah, and I was kind of wondering at that because clearly it's in the news that some of these shootings and cases were in direct response to uh, this phenomenon of, you know, white lady tears, as you call it, and which it's called uh, right now in the conversation. Um, you know, what to do about it? Because crying is, in some ways, it's hard to always tell if it's voluntary or involuntary. Um, so what does one do about white lady tears if you're trying to protect Black lives? Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, I think if you, I think that the intervention is, the major intervention is required before we get to the point of the white lady tears, um, so that we have a fundamental restructuring of the entire society. Dismantling capitalism would be a good start, I think. Um, dismantling the um, the prison industrial complex. Uh, so they're, they're sort of broad things that I personally am uh, convinced are necessary to stop us from getting to the point of white lady tears. Um, but in the meantime, um, I, I think it's really useful uh, to, as I said before, just look at what tears are making happen. Who are they calling attention towards? who are they drawing attention away from? And then ask yourself, is that right? Is that going to turn the situation in a way that feels just? Um, I also just think that um, it would be really useful if people seeing any form of distress, whether it's tears or an argument or um, some sort of behavior that they view as being 
problematic in some way um, to look to solutions other than calling the police. Um, I think that if we could have a, a broad move towards other solutions, it would go a long way to reducing harm in this world. Why do you think the world rises in defense of a white woman's tears more than any other person? Um, well, I should also say that there are definite instances of um, white women's tears not being heated um, or um, being heated, but then also um, a source for dismissal by people who um, hold power over them. Um, and you know you can see that um, you can see that in the way that some um, like rich white men will uh, respond to a white woman's tears in certain situations um, if a white woman is in any way working to uh, question their power. Um, but that said, I think that it's because white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy constructs the white woman as the sort of um, the ideal woman and the definition of ideal woman in that particular framework has to do with her um, purity and vulnerability. And it's convenient to have a figure like that to um, say is being threatened by figures who other people with power also feel threatened by. Yeah, I'm finding myself very drawn to this idea of, you know, well, we have to dismantle the systems. It's, you know, not our fault that sometimes we cry or that people cry, but, you know, uh, white supremacy besmirches everything, even our tears. It will use any material it can, absolutely any material that becomes available to it, including tears. How do you feel about public crying versus private crying? Oh, that's a really interesting question, especially right now, right? When we are um, so sort of betwixt and between. Um, you you might be going to um, school or to meetings in the same place that you cried the night before. Um, I know personally, I, I hate crying in public. Um, I've literally had nightmares about it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you? Oh, no. Wait, will you tell me? Will you tell me a nightmare where you're crying in public? Like, is there a particular place? Yeah, it's it's very similar to, um, I guess, dreams of being naked at school. It's just like uh, being in a classroom crying, probably a childhood memory. I don't have them as much anymore, but I remember that level of feeling vulnerable around the idea of crying in public. Yeah, it's um, it's it's difficult, and it's difficult in part because um because we have these, it is possible to have these cultural ideas of shame attached to the act. Um, but then also because you never know who is going to say what to you. It becomes this sort of weird door that opens and you don't know who's gonna walk through it and what they're going to make happen. Um, and you're already in such a vulnerable state that it can feel, I think, especially scary um, to have that happen. I, I've thought a lot about how I respond when I see people crying in public. Um, 
and and then of course the definition of public shifts um you know there's a difference between say seeing someone crying on a bench in a park and then seeing someone crying in a bathroom um I feel like in a bathroom, there's a little bit more space to kind of gently approach and check in, um, which I've done, you know, on occasion. Um, but you have to do it in a way that you're able to step back and do no more if um, it's clear that your attentions are unwanted. You know, that might actually be a gendered thing because as I'm thinking back on it I've never seen a man cry in a public restroom oh uh, yeah is that something that is somewhat like something that happens um in you know women's restrooms um yeah yeah it, it does happen that's a really interesting uh difference I think of uh how uh we're just socialized to cry differently and in different places depending on our gender yeah yeah we um we are it's true i'm i'm trying to think about um public bathrooms i've been in that are open to people of all genders and how crying has occurred in those spaces um but i'm not having anything immediately come to mind no that's that's uh is, are there any other uh, points of a, sort of the gendered ways that we cry differently or the expectations around crying that you think are um, interesting to look at? Um, I think it can be, well, I mean, I, I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I want to sort of open that by saying that much of the research that happens around crying treats sex and gender as identical terms and as absolutely binary. Um, there are, of course, many people working in the sciences who have broader understandings of sex and gender. Um, but as far as I have so far seen, uh, those two groups of people are not um, overlapping in a way that creates um, an inclusive gender-based study of crying. Um, but with all of those caveats, um, I am really interested in the way that um, tears cause praise for men and uh, disdain for women in many situations. Um, particularly, I think, um, in, you can see this a lot in politics, um, that a man is allowed to like shed a few tears um, and is seen as sort of noble um, in, in some cases, um, whereas a woman might be seen as, uh, to use a, a term that would come up in that circumstance, hysterical. That's really interesting because, of course, I agree with you that that is a thing, especially for powerful politicians or leaders. Um, maybe corporate executives and things like that. And I've also noticed that, you know, one thing I've been almost envious of in my life, especially when I was younger and more attached to these things, as I felt like the girls and then women that I knew were allowed to cry, where 
a boy or a man was discouraged from doing so. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and that does immense harm to, um, it does immense harm to the psyche of men. Bell Hooks writes about this really beautifully. Um, and she talks a bit about how she has seen in some cases, um, like older black men kind of reconnecting with tears later in life and, and feeling, um, again, a sort of sense of possible access to them. Do you have so, any... Oh, I was just going to say, it, it seems like age might might enter into it a little bit as well. You, that was what I was going to ask. Why, why do you think it inverts for leaders or for the powerful? Oh, I mean, they have their own whole set, for, set of rules for everything. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wildly interesting, all these uh, taboos and rules that we all absorb and see and yet don't really question or think about until we look at crying from every angle we can possibly think of. Yeah, and and that's what's so, for me, kind of fascinating about this subject. But then I, there's also a part of me that thinks, and you know, I'm I'm working on another book now, and I'm with another subject, and I'm doing a sort of similar approach of trying to take as many angles as I possibly can. And there's a part of me that feels, and the poet part of me agrees with this too, that if you look closely enough at anything, it's going to begin to reveal patterns um, and hierarchies and systems within which one lives one's life. Hey everyone, why don't we interrupt our show here, kind of like how the We Croak app interrupts our lives with, with a quote. Here's one from Ellen Glasgow. The only difference between a rut and a grave is their dimensions. What do you think, Hansa? Pretty, uh, pretty true. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that one. Um, I mean, yeah, get out of the rut. Life is short. No use staying there. That's that's the whole purpose. If you can do that, just keep going. Um, and if you have questions how to do that, uh, we do have some new uh, thing we're launching, which is an Ask Death Advice Column newsletter. Head over to our website, www.wecroak.com. Uh, for more information about that. And you can ask all sorts of questions and the voice of death will answer. It's a fun ancient stoic philosophy practice, actually, which is really cool. And we're having a lot of fun with it. So go check that out. And uh, yeah, other ways of supporting uh, the whole We Croak uh, idea and universe, Ian. Our Patreon, We Croak Leap, which is where we actually got this quote from. So there's a if you liked that one, there's a ton of great more ones in like it. Again, the largest collection we've ever assembled. Um, and the podcast, of course, tell your friends if you haven't already. And with that, uh, let's return to the conversation. I, I have a funny question along those lines. Is that, you know, in, if you're uh a geek that's been studying meditation and mindfulness a long time, you find these old meditations that are just like, imagine death from every single angle you can. Imagine every possible way you could die today is a meditation that people have taught for a long time. And did you have any sort of, I don't know, how did looking at crying from every angle change your state of mind or state of view? Like, did it have an uh, a change in your uh, interior 
uh, psychodynamic sort of state? I think that it has made me more attuned to those um, patterns and systems that we've been talking about um, so that I, I notice the way that patterns replicate themselves in all sorts of moments now in a way that I think I was not able to access as fully before I wrote this book. Um, and I continue to grow in that. I'm by no means finished learning um, about how to tend and attend to the world. Um, but there's also, you know, the, the fact of my own particular experience with crying and with mental health. And there are people who have asked if this book proved to be, you know, therapeutic or healing in some sense. And that for me has not been the case. You know, other interventions um, have been much more significant on that front. But there is something in my consciousness that happens differently now when I cry so that I am able to observe within myself the various elements of my lacrimal system and notice them activating. Um, I know physically what is occurring inside of me. I know chemically what is occurring inside of me. Um, and it does not stop me from reaching the various points of crying that I tend to do, but it does I think, arrange them slightly differently within myself. Yeah, that's, that's beautifully said. And uh, this book does examine sort of um, those uh, personal pits of despair. And I think in a way that felt very brave to write about, it must have been. And um, I'd like to ask your permission to ask uh, a question or two about some of those places in the book. Sure, I'd be happy to. So one of the places where this theme is introduced, you talk about being uh, 14, um, getting a little bit drunk, um, breaking a window. She called Your mother called the police, and um, you say, before they arrived, before they took me to the hospital, I half undressed myself and climbed into the bath crying, chanting, keening, I want to die, I want to die. It is a song my body knows. And then the next um, portion you say, and I do not know whether the song comes from within or without, whether it is called forward by structures in the world or structures in my blood, both and neither, all. It is a song with few words, uh, subject, verb, infinitive. I keep it there, unconjugated. And uh, I guess my question is, you could tell us a little bit about that song and what it's what it's like to have to live with it. Yeah, it's um, it's a song that is a refrain in my life. It returns. Um, there are times when it abates for a good long while. Um, but one of the facts of my existence seems to be the ever-present possibility of the return of that song. Um, and I 
do not want to cause the hurt to the people I love that I know to actually act upon that desire would do. Um, I cannot tell you how deeply I do not want to cause that hurt. Um, and so it's it's a very mysterious thing to me um, to both so want to be in the world and to love the world, to be fascinated by the world. I mean, you can tell it's, I'm in love with the world in this odd way. I want to look at it from every possible angle. Um, and then yet sometimes this song emerges. Um, I like to be able to let people know that this happens in part because I think it is a story that doesn't often get told about suicidal ideation. Um, the fact of living with it and um, and continuing to live with it, right? Not um, not dying. And I think it's important that people know that that life too is possible. You finally made me cry a little, Heather. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> or I hope I hope that the tears are coming in a way that feels all right to you and that you receive whatever care you need. Yeah, of, of, of course. And thank you. Um, uh, you suicide is a very uh, important topic, delicate one. Um, and uh, you do talk about an important person in your life who committed suicide as well as that song you speak of. And uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts either from your research or your life of how to reach out for help if, uh, if you need it. Yes, um, there, are, um, there are some wonderful resources that exist um, and that remain accessible even in the moment we are living in um, and are, I think, used quite a bit at this moment, which I am um, glad to know is the case. Um, I'm just opening up my book so I can get the actual information here. Um, so there is um, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline in the US, which is 1-800-273-8255. Um, there's also the um, crisis text line, um, which is really great for people who are maybe not feeling able to actually use their voice to speak at the moment. Um, and um, if you if you text home to 741741, you can get connected with someone who um, is, is good at um, responding if you're having a hard time. Um, so those are sort of two um, very available resources, um, but then it doesn't. You don't have to do it through those, you know, particular veins. Um, there are there are always people who want to help. Um, there is therapy that is available. There, there's mindfulness work you can do. There is medication if that seems like a useful option. Um, these these things are are there and need to be used because we need 
We need every person here. We really do. Um, sometimes I am aware that um, these resources that I talk about as being available to everyone are um, are blocked in some cases, are blocked by people who are in prison or in jail or being held in detention centers. And um, I also know that there are people even within those circumstances who are, if anyone is in those circumstances and hearing this, I just want them to know that, um, that they are beloved and needed as well. Um, and I hope that we continue to transform the world in a way that makes the value of their lives more apparent to everyone. Very beautifully said, thank you. And uh, one thing I was thinking about is that there's often this uh, gulf that exists between um, people who you know, um, do not uh, experience this suicidal ideation. Um, for example, I've, my mind has never gone there. I am blessed in that way. Um, but I have family members who are, and friends who've made attempts. And um, I was wondering if uh, you have any words for how to better support or understand uh, people going through this particular uh, uh, thing. I think that one of the um, painful things that can happen is that sense of separation, right? That sense of it being impossible to understand across the gulf of experience there, and that it can feel like someone who has taken a step toward death is somehow on the other side of a line then that can be difficult to reconnect across. Um, and it's, I think, very important not to emphasize that line, um, but to, as much as possible, be with the person um, and to continue to just to, to be the, the human friend that you are to them. Um, and, you know, to understand the, the seriousness of it, but um, not to feel that that seriousness makes the person unreachable. I don't have specific words um, to say <laughs> um, because, you know, my sense of, of language is, so so very particular um, and and attuned to particular circumstances, but I bet that people can find the words to love their friend. I'm in love with that idea of uh, having hope that the person you care about is reachable. Yes. Yes, and that actually that reminds me of um, some words from. Um, Marian, Mariam Kaba, who is a, a prison um, abolitionist and whose name I um, usually read, and so I hope I am not um, saying too poorly, but um, 
she says, hope is a discipline. And I think that that applies to all sorts of circumstances. Wow, I love that quote too. <laughs> yeah, she's incredible. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about hope a little bit and uh, and beauty as well, because that is one of the thousand angles I feel this book gets into about tears. That it has its ugliness, but also its sort of sublime areas. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of those. Um, parts of crying. Sure, I, I'm. I'm trying to think of if there's a, a thing you're thinking about in particular with um, crying from beauty or love, um, or just sort of generally. Mm, let's talk about crying from love. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember, um, and I, I write about this a bit in the book, but I remember my sister coming to visit me. Um, I'm very, very close with my sister. She's also a writer. Um, Michelle Crystal is her name, and she's brilliant. Um, she came to visit me just after her own child had been born. And I remember watching her uh, watch her child and my child together, her baby and my toddler. And I could see tears coming to her eyes and it was an extraordinary moment for me because it was when I was in the midst of a, a pretty deep depression and I realized that I couldn't remember the last time I had cried for that kind of reason but seeing that she did it reminded me that I could <laughs> and I was so grateful that she had access to that depth of feeling in that moment. I love that. I also found in reading your book, just you, you're a poet, of course, and you, you quote a lot of poets. And it's, you know, on the topic of crying, you don't deviate from that topic. But there's so much beauty in the words. And why? How, how does that happen? How does how does like our ugly crying become like, uh, such beauty on a page when in the hands of uh, a poet? Sometimes I think the sensation of beauty is one of um, experiencing a sense of precision um, and uh, a fresh way of um, understanding something that has gone perhaps uh, unseen for a time. Um, so there is a there's a satisfaction as a as a poet as a writer in knowing that you have arrived at a precise way of saying a hard or complicated thing um, and saying it in a way that does not feel exactly hard or complicated or any more complicated than it needs to be, but that um, there is perhaps an image or a verb that crystallizes things in such a way that the joy of the words themselves and the the precision or accuracy of how they're stated can cause its own form of joy that is not apart from what is said but is um, another dimension of it. Do you have a favorite poem or a, maybe a few on the uh on the theme of uh, tears and crying? 
Um, on the theme of tears and crying, I don't know that I do. Um, I mean, I do love that. I love that line of Zach's that I talked about. You know, the good thing about crying is you don't have to pick a subject. Um, but um, but I did actually, I, I printed out a couple of poems that I thought might come up that are less about um, less about tears, but more about um, the how to how to speak to someone who um, may be struggling. One of them's short. If you wanted, I could I could read it. It would be fast. I, I would absolutely love to hear one right now. Okay. Um, so I'll I'll read this one and then I'll just mention um, before I do that there is a there's another poem that sort of is in conversation with this one called Sorrow Is Not My Name by Ross Gay. And it's beautiful because it um, it makes his own he makes his own expression around this, but he ends um, with a sort of response to um, to the end of this Gwendolyn Brooks poem, and I love I love it when um, these conversations in poetry, um, in writing, continue across across years and generations. Um, and I'm glad to be um, among these many voices. Um, I'm not in this particular conversation between these two poets, but you know what I mean. Um, okay, so this is To the Young Who Want to Die by Gwendolyn Brooks. And I'm going to try to read it without crying. Sit down, inhale, exhale. The gun will wait. The lake will wait. The tall gall in the small seductive vial will wait, will wait. We'll wait a week. We'll wait through April. You do not have to die this certain day. Death will abide, will pamper your postponement. I assure you, death will wait. Death has a lot of time. Death can attend to you tomorrow or next week. Death is just down the street, is most obliging neighbor, can meet you at any moment. You need not die today. Stay here. Through pout or pain or peskiness, stay here. See what the news is going to be tomorrow. Graves grow no green that you can use. Remember, green's your color. You are spring. Uh, I love Gwendolyn Brooks so, so, so much. <laughs> <laughs> so grateful for that poem. That is um, a powerhouse. And it, it, I think it gets exactly to what I was saying about the beauty that comes through in this book kind of through the really um, the, the physiological and emotional and consequential parts of crying that you tackle. Thanks. I'm, I'm happy to, um, I'm happy to be done with the book and I'm so glad that it now gets to go out and do this other work with other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just the experience of reading the book is one minute you're reading about, you know, horrifying violence because of white lady tears or you know someone who's committed suicide or just being ugly and crying and then the next you're just like blown away by the beauty of that common human experience of of grief of crying of being sad of somehow how we talk about it and it becomes something else yeah uh, if you have any other poems at hand I, I would love to hear one more yeah um uh... I don't, well, 
Yeah, I, can, I mean, I can read this this Ross Gay poem if you'd like. Um, so it's it's Sorrow is Not My Name, and um, it's after Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, and yeah, I, lo I love this one too. I love Ross Gay. Um, I don't know if you know his poems at all, um, but he, uh, he just had a, a book of prose come out recently called The Book of Delights. Um, and uh, there's also... Um, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude is, is a favorite of mine. Um, and a poem that I actually quote in the crying book is, is in there. Um, but anyway, he's, he's magnificent. And um, I'm writing now about gardens and he is a, a gardener poet. So I am quite obsessed with his work at the moment. Um, but anyway, this is Sorrow is Not My Name. No matter the pull toward brink, no matter the florid deep sleep awaits, there is a time for everything. Look. Just this morning, a vulture nodded his red, grizzled head at me, and I looked at him, admiring the sickle of his beak. Then the wind kicked up, and after arranging that good suit of feathers, he up and took off, just like that. And to boot, there are, on this planet alone, something like two million naturally occurring sweet things, some with names so generous as to kick the steel from my knees. Agave, persimmon, stickball, the purple okra I bought for two bucks at the market. Think of that. The long night, the skeleton in the mirror, the man behind me on the bus taking notes. Yeah, yeah. But look, my niece is running through a field calling my name. My neighbor sings like an angel, and at the end of my block is a basketball court. I remember. My color's green. I'm spring. I love that so much too. Yeah, it's I mean that I love the um I love the way that he is um he's in this joyful moment and then he also ends with this this gesture towards Brooks of saying like I I heard you, you know? I I heard you and I am here in some measure in response to you because of you. Um your poem did its work. Um, and I, I love that so much. Um, Reading them uh, back to back like that makes me feel like the form of the second one is both poem and love letter. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a really nice way of putting it. Um, I was also, as I was getting ready to, to talk with you, I was thinking about um, some some words by Mary Ruffel where she talks about how um, poets' work is sort of transformed by their death, that like they, you are able to access something about their understanding of death um, more deeply after they die. Like it actually like activates the work in some strange way. Um, and I think that one of the, one of the things that happens then is that we, we pass these letters back and forth um, across across that line that seems um, unbridgeable. Um, but poets were always doing that work, always. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of that idea that you gave me earlier, which was such a gift uh, when we were talking about some of the heavy stuff um, that, uh, you know, to have hope that the person you care about is reachable. And to hear a poem reach someone like that across you know, the expanse of time and generations um, is really inspiring to think 
you know, hey, you know, with the right words, with the right understanding, you know, maybe I could reach that person. Maybe we could reach each other. Yes. Yeah. And, and reach, um, reach across difference too, right? As, as Audre Lorde speaks about, um, I think that this is a moment in which um, our connections to one another are so apparent, right? The intertwinedness of all of our lives and well-being. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this too as like, I'm, I'm a white lady who wrote a book about crying. Um, and I want to sort of recognize my subject position within those various parts of connection. Um, and I want to continue to hope for transformative connection across distance and difference. Well, Heather, Crystal, I've enjoyed this conversation so, so, so much. And we've been talking for an hour now. I, I can't believe it. <laughs> it was really a pleasure. Thank you so much for the um, for the depth and care of your questions. I'm I'm really grateful. Thank you. Uh, it was easy with a book that has so much depth and care to to uh, to do that. And uh, for our listeners who, having listened to um, you speak, might be interested in your book, your poems, your translations. Can you just um, uh, do me, me and them a favor by uh, plugging a little bit of where uh, everyone can find your work? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so the crying book is available um, all over the place, but in particular, it's available in independent bookstores um, who need your support in this moment so that we continue to have beautiful bookstores in communities um, for forever. Um, if you don't have access to one immediately by you, then it's good to check out bookshop.org um, and they can help uh, to connect you with a place that might be nearby that you would want to support. So that's a great place to get the crying book uh, if you are looking for it. Wonderful. And you mentioned there will be some translations soon? Yes. Yeah. So there's um, there's a new translation out in Dutch um, in, uh, from Contact Atlas, and then there are translations on the way. I'm so lucky for this. I'm so grateful and astonished that people are either taking the time with us, but there's uh, translations on the way in Turkish, Russian, uh, Spanish, Italian, and Korean. So um, I'm delighted that the book will get to go and meet other words and other readers. Uh, I'm excited for them. Uh, well, thank you so much, um, Heather. It's been an absolute pleasure and have uh, a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. Take care, Hansa. Heather Crystal, thank you so much for joining us for this incredibly moving and important episode of our podcast. The book is The Crying Book, available at local bookstores and at thebookshop.org. We'll have a link to that one in the show notes. Our next episode comes out the first week of December. And until then, we'll see you next time.